0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello and welcome to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashrin Johan and joining me today is Cynthia Gabriel. She's a human rights advocate at the Center to Combat Corruption and Cronyism, also known as C4. Cynthia has been a key advocate for human rights and good governance in Malaysia for decades. She spent most of her life defending human rights and fighting corruption. She was at one point the executive director of SWARAM and even worked with United Nations bodies such as the OHCHR and UNODC. After the 2018 election, she was appointed into the 1MDB special committee, reporting directly to then Prime Minister Dr. Mahade, Welcome to the show, Cynthia. How are you doing?
1: Thank you so much, Dashran.
0: So, Cynthia, let's get right into it. Um, let, let's start from C4. You're one of the founders of, of C4. Um, tell me about your work there and what pushed you to start this organization in the first place?
1: Well, it's been a very long, colorful, adventurous journey on my part. And C4 Centre was an experiment very much, an initiative that was started by several uh, experienced civil society friends, uh, because we felt that the issue of governance, integrity, and corruption was gaining a lot of ground in the period right after the 13th general elections. So it was also coming after a direct experience that a couple of us, including myself, uh, had broke a scandal around uh, the purchase of submarines from France. And we were very naive maybe to think that uh, the details of which were going to be picked up by the local law enforcement here because it involved uh, personnel from both France and Malaysia in the procurement process that had suspicious malpractice activities, including um, commission money amounting to half a billion half a billion uh, ringgit at the time. At the time, half a billion sounded a lot. Of course, after 1MDB, half a billion doesn't sound like a lot of money (laughs) anymore. But it's 500 million ringgit, and it was uh, very suspicious about where the money went and so on. So uh, we basically... Decided to do several things out of the box. We lodged a complaint at the French tribunals. And who oh, are we anyway? We are a Malaysian civil society group not recognized by the European Union or France, etc. But we just tried. And it was getting very interesting because France uh, authorities, the French authorities, wrote to us and told us that they were opening an investigation paper on their own personnel that could be involved in uh, potential malpractice. And then the whole thing started and we realised that we were at the centre of something so serious, which was implicating the Prime Minister uh, to be, or at the time, the Deputy Prime Minister, which was Najib Razab. So with all that hoo-ha, and we were suddenly attacked as whistleblowers, not intending to uh, get ourselves into trouble, but hoping that the authorities would pick up the case. Uh, it didn't happen, of course, so they came after us. And those were important lessons, actually, to to understand that there were no real mechanisms in the country to protect whistleblowers or no real mechanisms for the public to raise potential malpractice, um, corrupt kind of issues that involved uh, people in power and so on. So we decided to set up this group called C4. And we also named it in a way which was naughty enough for people to remember it. Because what is C4? (laughs) We always say it's a bomb, right? Uh, We could have named it for C or something else. But we (laughs) to remember that there were very serious, unresolved Uh, corruption cases, especially those that were involving people in high positions of power. So here Mm. we are, after seven years, uh, 2022 would mark seven years of our existence. Of course, I've been involved in other things before that, but the entire seven years of being in C4 have been an incredible learning process, a very steep learning curve about governance issues in the country and also at the regional and global level because we find that a lot of the corrupt activities and initiatives by businessmen, by politicians, it doesn't stay within the borders of the country. It actually transcends across the borders.
0: When did your journey in activism begin?
1: Quite pointedly, I would say uh, around the time of reformacy. Hmm. That was when I was this young, very (laughs) gullible, maybe. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, I just graduated from university at around that time. Uh, And I was actually quite shocked and also found myself in the middle of some um, rallies and demonstrations because it was a bit, um, you know, it was more beyond dramatic that there was uh, Anwar Ibrahim, who was not just sacked from government uh, by uh, Prime Minister Mahathir at that time. And it was also a time that the Queen of England was visiting uh, Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia for her Commonwealth activities. And I think we were hosting Chogam and stuff. And then a couple of my friends said, okay, let's get around to see what the the whole demonstration was about. And then when we just went close to the area, it was completely overwhelming to see the streets filled with people. And there were so many uh, supporters and demonstrators actually trying to show support for Anwar Ibrahim, who was dismissed. And then that very same night, he was detained. And after that, it just... Everything else is history, you know, his black eye and the way he was uh, detained under the Internal Security Act and everything. It it was just something that uh, got me really interested and and excited about, oh my God, if this could happen to a uh, deputy prime minister, what, what about us, you know? So right. something about being denied justice or being abused kind of compelled me to kind of like become more curious about the whole system. And I have to tell you that my background is actually a science background. So I had no Uh academic interest in this uh, at all. It was just that, yeah, I was involved a little bit in university with some student activities and stuff, but it wasn't so much uh, something that I thought I would do on a more full-time basis, on a more consistent basis, but the curiosity got the better of me because then it just opened up Pandora's box, can of worms about how everything works in the system and how if you don't exercise your rights, you, you'll you be even further victimized. So the, the whole thing about um, the oppression, I think, that, was, mm-hmm. that got the better of me, the curiosity, it was curiosity very much at the time it wasn't anything so personal but I found myself being dragged into the whole thing more and more because I had friends who were also very curious about what was going to happen next to the country and uh, and everything else happened after that from 1998-2000 onwards and and I saw for myself some changes that took place, important changes, including uh, political changes and stuff, which were important experiments for the country to see what Malaysia would look like if it had better governance. So, um, yeah. So here I am after 20 years talking to you about what, <laughs> was what I'm doing. <laughs>
0: Tell me a little bit about your family. Uh, When you were growing up, did did your family, did your parents, other family members discuss um, these kinds of things, whether it's politics, human rights, and how did they feel when you decided that you wanted to tread this path?
1: I come from a pretty middle-class background. So, as I said just now, there wasn't any direct oppression that I felt when I was growing up. So it was a very comfortable life, Uh, not very comfortable, but comfortable enough to not care about anything else around me except have a good time, you know, live a fun young teenage life and so on. But when I went to university, I was kind of exposed to some uh, conversations, friends, dialogues, discussion on society, social development, Uh, Environment issues, etc. And I even uh, visited the office of the Consumer Association of Penang and Sahabat Allah, Malaysia. I remember that. Uh, And uh, there were some cases that they were taking up about communities affected by rare earth um, plants in Perak and how they were actually having health hazard issues and stuff. So, a little bit here and there. And I thought I could use my, my degree what I was learning to actually assist. So what I did, my course was a specialist um, uh, course on chemistry. It was called the analytical chemistry. And it was about a lot of laboratory work, <clears throat> you know, working in mm-hmm. a science lab, which is nothing to do with the kind of stuff. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> so people would say "Sasat," along the way. Um, but, it was interesting because I actually had the opportunity to then use the lab to uh, analyze different samples of water uh, that they were drinking and that was coming through the system after the rare earth plant was um, uh, operational near the villages and stuff like that. So it was very interesting to kind of like uh, even do my dissertation around uh, mineral water content and how people were drinking Uh, some brands which had too much magnesium or plumbum and calcium and didn't really follow the the world standards or world health standards that were required for bottled water and stuff. So it just grew on me that, you know, this kind of evidence-based info could be very useful to actually assist communities because they were up against not just the company, but the government, and they had taken the company to court, and all these things happened a couple of years uh, along the process, and I was just a little volunteer on the sideline trying to understand over the bigger picture and all that, but I enjoyed my course as well, so I just thought, ah, okay, nice, you know, so this is how I could find ways to connect, get involved in activities, but... It just didn't work out for me to see myself working in a science lab. In fact, after graduating, maybe that thought of being stuck in the lab just got a bit too depressing. So I was more and more uh, interested in people's issues. And then just one thing um, fell into place with another, and it just evolved. And interestingly, maybe also because of the fact that I didn't have to speak out on anything when I was growing up. Right. I didn't feel the need to speak out when I was growing up. Growing up. And I was doing more science type of uh, work when I was in uh, college. So I, I wasn't actually someone who was out there being a student leader, uh, debating or anything. In fact, I didn't really like to speak in public. I was quite shy about doing all these things. And I always thought being a reasonable person, being diplomatic, finding solutions, etc. would probably be how things work, you know, in mm-hmm. society. But it was very, very important lessons that I learned along the way. After graduation, after looking at reformacy, after understanding power mapping and how it works in society, that you may be very good at what you do, but you may not actually be given opportunities to excel because the system is discriminatory, because uh, certain uh, groups of people favoured over others, uh, because power determines how policies are shaped. And so I was learning many things along the way, and I realised also that, Uh, how uh, someone like Anwar Ibrahim could fall from a high position of power to a detainee in jail Mm -hmm. and an abused person under the rule of the uh, former IGP at the time who was found responsible for that Black Eye episode and stuff like that. So it became quite obvious for me, that if I were interested in people's issues and wanting to do more justice type of work, it was really quite impossible not to confront government abuse and corrupt systems that were already entrenched and in place for a long time. And when you have a government that didn't actually allow spaces for speaking at around that time... Uh, you're bound to like run headlong into a confrontation. And then it looked like, yeah, you need to actually be, be, have some amount of bonus. You, even though you don't like to speak, it just forces you to do things that are necessary. And I guess that's part of the growth process. You find that your own individual personality becomes stronger you gain more confidence when you want to say something, and you want to say something that may be important, that could actually change the course of something in particular. And it was important to speak up, because if you don't speak up, then your rights would be snatched away. We haven't actually changed the culture of how Malaysians address unhappiness displeasure, or even they're so upset about a particular abuse or injustice, whether it's a, a labor discrimination, ethnic discrimination, or whether it's about gender equality or, or outright corrupt um, bosses, you know, that deny the, the quality of life that should be accorded to different individuals and societies and stuff. It was a very important uh, re- uh, realization for me that it was necessary to speak, even though I didn't like to be so upfront and robust and offer strong opinion, you know, because that was not how the training uh, when I was growing up happened. But it, it was an important realisation that it had to be done.
0: On the show with me today is Cynthia Gabriel. She's a human rights advocate at the Centre to Combat Corruption and Cronyism, C4. C4. After the break, I ask her about her time reporting directly to former Prime Minister Thun Dr Mahadeh. Keep it here on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. My guest on today's episode is Cynthia Gabriel, human rights advocate at the Centre to Combat Corruption and Cronyism, also known as C4. So, Cynthia, you once wrote on Al Jazeera, Cynthia, and I quote, former PM Najib Razak, has become a poster boy for corruption in Malaysia. But he is only the tip of the iceberg. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, definitely, I still hold that line that he is the Mm -hmm. poster boy of corruption in in, uh, Malaysia and the world, actually, because the 1MDB scandal had just overturned everything the global... World had to prevent money laundering, for example, to prevent cross border corruption, to actually look at how to uh, deal with um, offshore accounts and everything. So there are rules, but maybe not strong enough rules. There are regulations by the Financial Action Task Force, which involves many countries. There's the UN Office of Drugs and Crime that provide many uh, guiding principles for governments to follow. But what Najib did when he was in power at that time was really about entrenching power for himself because he was not just the prime minister, he was also the finance minister. And he was given a lot of power in his hands to facilitate uh, and to ensure that There were many avenues in which the international system could uh, probably help in uh, promoting money that would come to to himself, to his political party, and so on. And without that shocking change of government, which was quite monumental in 2018, we would not have seen him facing so many trials. And the trials are ongoing. So... Uh, I did say he was the poster boy because Malaysia was elevated to so many levels of concern with all these different international agencies because of 1MDB. Because 1MDB provided very important case studies for them to continue to look at where the legal loopholes are. So if you look at Singapore itself, just one country in which a lot of the money, the stolen money was parked, Singapore single-handedly had amended so many of its anti-money laundering laws uh, because of 1MDB. Singapore had jailed bankers because of 1MDB. Singapore had actually taken a a lot of action. And for a a small country in the region that actually focuses a lot on economic growth, it is a financial hub in the region. But it had to take action because there were so many... Money laundering rules that were broken. So, similarly in the US, you know, when the Department of Justice actually announced that they were uh, going to forfeit all these different um, properties that were bought with stolen assets, uh, stolen money, and all these stolen assets were now going to be put on auction and sold. And there's this whole big element of the Convention Against Corruption that we signed that talks about recovery of stolen assets. So asset recovery and how the country that has been deprived of all these uh, things and the victim, which is Malaysia at the time, that we actually see a return of the stolen assets. And the US has been a great example. Singapore has been a great example of returning a lot of those money back to Malaysia. But the question here is, where is that money How is it being utilized and how is the government actually uh, taking charge of actually uh, ensuring that that stolen money is used for the benefit of the people? So here is where we need a whole lot of transparency, accountability, which we don't have actually in this country. So we are worried. But back to Najib being a poster boy, um, Mm -hmm. I think that was the tip of the iceberg of looking at how the entire system in Malaysia has been so completely abused and manipulated to allow grand corruption, when we're talking about grand corruption, it's like cross-border corruption to the highest levels that have moved across countries, including to Hollywood, if you remember that Wolf on Wall Street movie that people paid for. So it all became so bizarre, even not just for Malaysians, but for the global community, it's like the thievery was extensive. It just stretched across borders and stuff. And even until today, uh, when the Pandora Papers were released, even more cross-border criminal networks that were being detected around the world, there were many political leaders that were involved. And 1MDB was still 1MDB Money, was still making its rounds in Indian and uh, Russian scandals. So uh, there's a whole lot more to un- uncover. And I think uh, without saying more, um, Najib Razak has already been convicted and uh, conviction has been upheld by the Court of Appeal. Of course, due process allows him to take it to another level, to the federal court, but it might be a little bit more... Challenging with his 1MDB trial and that of his wife as well to actually see where these corruption trials would head for the country. So he has actually put Malaysia in a very bad light when it comes to uh, the country being corrupted.
0: Cynthia, battling corruption, um, as you have done to the level you have done, can be a very dangerous job because you are taking on the state. You are taking on powerful people in, in powerful positions with a lot of money. What have been? What has been the scariest period in your career so far?
1: You're absolutely right. It's sometimes, you know, when I look back, I think it's like I must have been crazy to take on this path. <laughs> because it's a really, really hazardous career. It's actually really dangerous. And uh one of the scariest moments really was uh when I first started telling you about the procurement of the scorpion submarines from the right. government. Um, There were some documents, uh, some highlights that were made known to us before we filed the judicial complaint in the French courts, and we really never thought anything would come come off it. But when they decided to open an inquiry and their magistrate investigated further, subpoenaed a couple of people from France and so on, uh, they basically sent us a set of documents not for our safekeeping because we had no local standard in France, but for us to know that there were a couple of important implications from the people in power in Malaysia that allowed for um, that 500 million and even more uh, other smaller money uh, that were unaccounted for to be made. And so we were left with this decision about whether to just move on with our lives, just do work which wasn't detrimental to anything or to expose it in Malaysia. So we thought hard about it and we chose to do the right thing, so to speak. So we exposed it here in Malaysia and we requested for top-level investigation for because MECC was previously not really picking up on the case and they were not really investigating uh, anything. And um, in fact, what happened... at That time was the harassment on us was so strong formally by the government. The government actually set up a task force of uh, six different agencies to monitor the organization, a human rights group called Swaram, which was a small group of six staff (laughs) uh, with a couple of volunteers. And they raided the office, took the files and they hauled us to the police station and the company's commission and the registrar of societies like 33 times in total. I went there 33 times in total for different police questioning, uh, uh, ROS, SSM questioning, because they were trying to find something to be able to charge us, and they found nothing. In fact, the accounts were so neat and so complete that they couldn't find anything to charge us, so they returned everything after a while. But During that whole period, that period of about a year and a half, two years when we were being harassed and constantly appearing on national news as the villains of the country instead of being celebrated as whistleblowers who were trying to highlight some serious wrongdoing.
0: Yeah, I remember that time, you know, because I, I actually remember seeing uh, your face, uh, um, yeah, some of your team's face. And at that time, I was in, I think it was in 20, 2013 around there, where yeah. I was just in college. So, like, um, I was only getting into, you know, this this whole idea of politics and, and all these bigger picture stuff and all of that. And I remember watching TV, eh, like, you know, the likes of RTM and whatnot, state um, TV channels, and they used to air your. Your your faces every night and painted you like you said as as a, as villains. What was that like, and how were your family members and 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 your closest friends and all feeling at the time? You know, watching your face on 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 national TV and presented as the the, the bad guys taking on the government or trying to destabilize the country and and so on and so forth.
1: That was the actually the biggest and most difficult thing was to appease our parents, uh, family members, and all that, who were rightfully very worried about our security and safety. So doing this kind of work comes with so much personal risk that it really, really, um, you know, looking, looking at everything I did, I don't know how I actually survived the whole thing, but it was really because there was so much support from the public There was so much sympathy and outward outpouring of uh, gratitude and support that I was actually so overwhelmed that so many people from all spectrums of society were actually reaching out and telling us that they were so um, like overwhelmed, so pleased, so honored, so happy that we were actually standing up against something. But it was actually... Definitely frightening. And it wasn't so much frightening about, personally, it wasn't so frightening that the police and all kinds of agencies were after us. But it was more the uh, the offline type of harassment. Online, of course, there were many threats because social media was already in place and developing very quickly. So there were all kinds of threats about better watch out, you know, we know where you family lives, we uh, be careful, uh, we know this, and uh, you better stop what you're doing. You know, those kind of threats. uh, Everything amounting to threatening your life. Uh, And it was like, there were so many times that I thought, uh, how do I even get out of this or give up, you know? But you just can't because you've already gone on this whole journey of trying to seek the truth, trying to hold power to account and you just have to do what you have to do. You know, it's like you don't need... You, it, it was important for me to also realize that that strength was something internal. You never knew you had it until it was time to demonstrate that you will not be uh, giving in to despair, giving in to fear, and so on. And you, you take the journey as whatever comes so it was uh, very scary. But what was even more frightening was the um, the thuggery that was probably involved because of all these online threats. Like even going to the Mama shop, kopitiam uh, for a drink with friends and all. You never knew who was behind you or watching you or, you know, holding a machete or a parang to get to you and you enter a car or something like Because you can't see these things. Right: Yeah, and so that was really quite scary at the time, and I think mm. uh, the biggest the biggest, absolute, biggest lessons from all this is uh, we will be unable to actually uh, talk about corruption, report corruption, protect whistleblowers, etc, if the environment is not enabling. And there needs to be a lot of protection for people to who speak up that they will not be harassed. Because what was happening at the time was also, I mean, we took on a very high level people in power. But there were also many other uh, persons who were inspired with, with the energy around this whole thing that they were also talking on Facebook criticizing different things, exposing different levels of corruption in the military, in the public sector, and all that. And then it started to look like uh, it was a kind of momentum building around between GE. Uh, yeah, you're right. That was the time around 2013 um, mm-hmm. when the GE 13 happened. And we already understood the mechanisms of uh, uh, some people in government, including Najib Razak at the time, on the on different issues that we were taking on around the procurement of the submarines and and, and all that. Um, so the interesting thing was as we were being harassed here, the French courts had actually indicted four personalities, including. The the guy at the center of the whole thing, the Jolo of the Scopin corruption scandal, the uh, uh, oh. Raza Baginda. Uh, he was also tried in the murder of Altantuya Sharipu, but he was acquitted there of the murder. and I think the family members are now still taking the government to court because the motive has not been established over her murder. But that's a separate matter altogether. But the French courts had indicted four persons, including Rasa and three other French officials, for uh, foreign bribery activities. And this was actually something that was very interesting for us because... If the French courts were actually moving with their investigations and they found that there were practices of foreign bribery, then why wasn't the Malaysian authorities investigating the same to ascertain whether anything really took place on on this side? Because it it involved both countries, you see, and the UN Convention Against Corruption actually uh, addresses international cooperation as a very important part of... uh, addressing corruption issues. So Malaysia was not actually participating or even cooperating at the time to find solutions to the issue. Um, MECC was not investigating. MECC opened an investigation paper, I think only in 2018, after there was a change in government. So it became so obvious that the situation was so lopsided and that there was a lack of willingness or even absolutely trying to uh, not work on this entire issue and all. But the fear level was was still very high because despite the French courts coming up with this uh, more and more concrete issues of malpractice and that several of them had engaged in foreign bribery, the frenzy over here was that we were trying to upset and destabilize the government of the day and that we were the bad people and And all that. But I was so overwhelmed and so grateful that a majority of the uh, constituents or the voters were so appreciative of our work. I mean, we became like um, stars for them. And another realization is that we don't really need heroes or stars in Malaysia, but we need more and more people to speak up and to speak out against corrupt practices. And the more that happens... Uh, the better likelihood we will have to see a more um, sustainable Malaysia, which is clean, which is ethical, which can actually attract better foreign investment, uh, because the climate is uh, enabling.
0: You also had very high hopes for Pakatan Harapan. Um, one of your goals was for Malaysia to be graph-free by 2023. This was after you know the people voted for Pakatan Harapan, voted out. Um, the incumbent Barisan National which has been governing Malaysia for more than 60 years. Um, You've also been vocal about Harapan's inaction or or at the very least, incredibly slow action. Uh, At that time, after g 14 you were reporting directly to Prime Minister, then Prime Minister, Tun Dr. Mahade. What was that like? What were some of the important observations you made during that period?
1: I mean, that... Change in two zero one eight was completely shocking. It was monumental. It was something that was unbelievable. I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime that there would be a change of government, which was uh, amazing. And um, corruption was what brought down the government. And it was also Pakatan Harapan that that rode on a good governance ticket that helped mm-hmm. them win uh, support. Mm-hmm. And so it was very motivating at that time that a corrupt leader could be brought down. And in a country like Malaysia especially, because at that time there were several other countries in the region that also were bringing down their corrupted uh, political leaders. So the first was South Korea, if you remember. They had an elections earlier on in the year, and they brought down their president who was engaged in some corrupt activity, but it wasn't as anywhere as serious as the 1MDB scandal. Uh, so, and then there was uh, Maldives and Pakistan, I, I re- remember, all in that year 2018 where the former cricket player Imran Khan was also voted in to help quell corruption in Pakistan. So he also overwhelmed all those entrenched political parties to win. So the mood was like, wow, I mean, you can actually bring down a corrupt leader if people were angry enough and determined enough to make certain um, changes and to come together to say that enough is enough. We don't want corrupt personalities in our political system. And that's exactly what I thought at that time was something that would be so major and so important for malaysia to move forward and so pakatan harapan won and i think there was a lot of hope that change would eventually happen in malaysia uh, of course um, the energy was was so high the mood was so high at that time and uh, i remember uh, also being given the opportunity to draft a national anti-corruption plan for five years for the country from 2019 to 2023. Mm -hmm. And so that plan was a great plan because we we spent so many hours uh, going over how comprehensive it should be, what laws are needed, what needs amendment, what kind of structural changes, including for the MACC, is actually required uh, to make our institution strong. Because regardless of what government comes into power, if we have good and functioning institutions, uh, that is the most aspect, most important aspect of a a democracy and a democratic type of uh, governance system that will ensure it still functions. So. The institutions we're talking about are the judiciary, the MECC, the Attorney General's chambers, the Auditor General's office, and so on, some of these big institutions that needed to function and be independent in whatever crisis, in whatever situation the political uh, situation is in. So there was a lot of hope for that. Uh, National Anti-Corruption Plan was the first the country was seeing. It replaced something called the National Integrity Uh, plan, and uh, it was um, very forward-looking. So the hope was by 2023, we would have a far uh, more accountable culture of governance. Uh, We'd be more transparent in how we do our procurement exercise, how we release information from the government, and how public participation can be better enhanced. But I guess all that was just dreams. Uh, because everything was crushed uh, as the months went by for uh, Pakatan and eventually Sheraton moved just brutally killed off everything that was being worked on because there were so many other task forces that were set up during Pakatan's time to study different laws and bills and we were invited to comment on the IPCMC bill The Ombudsman Bill, I remember, uh, the National Financial Crimes Centre Bill. Uh, There were so many things that uh, CIFOR was also invited to give feedback, comment, to be part of the drafting process. Everything looked like it was taking place. But after a while, it looked like even uh, commitment around Pakatan Harapan's uh, initiatives weren't actually being lived out. And it's quite regretful that some very basic laws are still in place today, like the Sedition Act, which could have been repealed. We've had three governments in three years. So I think every Malaysian has the right to, to really question where we are going, what's the policies, what where's the potential to save Malaysia from everything.
0: When we talk about corruption and all, something that has been um, making headlines in, in recent weeks is... The Azambaki case where, you know, he was an MACC uh, chief and then um, there were information um, coming out about how he was involved in like acquiring shares um, in two companies um, back in 2015. All this information is coming out and then, you know, he's naturally just denying it and he's saying that, you know, it's actually his brother was using his trading account. All of this is a, is a real mess, especially given that all of this is happening surrounding the MACC, which is supposed to be the one, you know, fighting. It's its our anti-corruption commission. It's supposed to be fighting um, corruption and and, and cronyism and, and all of these things. What is your take on this whole entire saga?
1: Well, it's a crisis beyond proportions. Uh, a tragedy, actually, because the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission is a bastion of hope. It is the primary institution that is starts to fight corruption, to protect Malaysians from corrupt political leaders, from corrupt businessmen. And so it was really important for the chief commissioner to be above the fray, above politics, above business, above everything so that he will have a very good um, independent hand in investigating all these uh, potential malpractices and corruption. So it was really, really uh, devastating. In fact, it was horrifying to learn that uh, he could be uh, allegedly himself uh, being so much uh, a part of uh, all these corporate ownership, business activities, um, and now, of course, at the press conference that he had, he he's denying that there were pecuniary interests and that he had enriched himself and everything was done uh, via his brother. But I, I guess he also didn't realize that he was running foul of some uh, potentially uh, critical other laws, which the Securities Commission is uh, uh entrusted to to check now. And we are very uh, happy, amazed actually, that a statement that came out from them yesterday that there will be some amount of uh, investigation and gathering of evidence around this matter. But back to the situation itself, um, there is a public officials uh, act. Uh, it's called... Uh, Okay, look at it. it's called the Public Office, Officers Regulation Act, Conduct and Discipline 1993. It does say that uh, civil servants can hold corporate shares, but they must declare their assets every five years and there are very severe limits and proportions like... Um, Five percent. I mean, there's a section 10 that actually details all these things that only five percent or less than one hundred thousand uh, of uh, number of shares. Some service circulars um, that have been that have come out, and that not more than five percent of the paid-up capital in every capital company, not more than five percent of paid-up capital or RM one hundred thousand. So definitely, uh, there are breaches. And these breaches are really disappointing in the way in which Azam Baki handled the entire interview because um, first he said he's only um, accountable to the advisory board, which is completely ridiculous because as a top civil servant, he's also paid by public funds. He's actually accountable to to the people is accountable to all Malaysians over what happened. Uh, MECC is the agency that um, should be promoting transparency, accountable mm-hmm. governance, and so on. And in this case, it has shown that even the um, investigations of the advisory board uh, were really lacking when it came to due process, because they just had one meeting with him. They did not call other interested parties to actually check what was the situation. They kind of absolved him of something that was just beyond belief, and so we maintain the fact that an, only an independent probe can, can and must be. Uh, help and must be convened immediately by the Prime Minister. It's actually something that has to be very high level. We really hope the Prime Minister is listening because he hasn't said anything so far. And we really hope that the, they will take action around this. Because if if this matter is glossed over and then we they expect people to move on, then uh, where, what do Malaysians do? I mean, the very institution entrusted to... Combat corruption is itself embroiled in corruption because you remember there's another case of the 25 million stolen money by its of- officials, the SPRM officials. Right. Yeah. So, there's this is actually a, an ex- expose of the mess and the rot inside the system. So, there's a real need for an entire revamp for the advisory board and its panels to be completely abolished revamp, restructure the MECC and the most important is the element of transparency, the appointment of Chief Commissioner. Even Pakatan Harapan didn't take that at all because they appointed, the Prime Minister appointed whoever he wanted without going through due process of a transparent appointment, of ensuring that this, the institution would be cleaned up and that there would be enough uh, opportunity for uh, experts and everything to apply for the post. So this is the time for reforms. I think it's a good way to end the interview by asserting that the MECC needs urgent reforms and it has to start now.
0: On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Cynthia.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for that long conversation.
0: That was Cynthia Gabriel, Human Rights Advocate, Center to Combat Corruption and Cronyism. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We are available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes, BFM 89.9
1: the business station.